Good afternoon, everybody. Can everyone hear me okay? Hands at the back if you can hear me. Great, perfect. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. James Brooks, the Melanie Trent de Shutter Library Director here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this noontime lecture. It's wonderful to see so many familiar and new faces here, and obviously also to be welcoming back Rachel Beanland, who is no stranger to our library and our collections. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan nation that inhabited the land where the museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and to maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and to all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, its present and its future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Anne Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president, and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Now, before I start today, we're just gonna run through a couple of upcoming events. So you've got those on your calendars. So first off, tell your friends and family, this Sunday, May 14th, there's a special offer for mums. Of course, it's Mother's Day and mums will enjoy free access to the museum galleries, including our most recent exhibition, Apollo, when we went to the moon. So if mum is a lover of history or you've simply forgotten that it's coming up, we have you covered. <laughs> Now a note for our members, on May 18th, uh, 2023, we invite you to join us at Virginia House for the 70th annual garden party. And this is where you can enjoy live music, libations, and fancy food amongst the historic gardens. And if you aren't a member, you can just find one to tag along with because guests of VMHC members are welcome to attend too. Our next in-person lecture will take place on Thursday, May 25th at noon and Preston Smith will be here to tell us the story of his father's service in the Royal Air Force, which is the subject of his newest book, Spitfire, an American World War II fighter pilot in the RAF. One more thing, following today's lecture, Ames Russell of AR's Hot Southern Honey will be in the museum cafe sampling his line of hot honey products, so we're keeping up with the flaming theme today. Uh, this event is part of our series featuring food producers from around the Commonwealth, so stop by to learn more about the recipes you can um, make using his premium honey to have a taste and even indulge in a handcraft, handcrafted hot honey latte, which are scrumptious. So on to today's program. Today's talk concerns Rachel Beanland's hot off the press, The House is on Fire. The book is based on the true story of the 18th, um, 1811 Richmond Theater Fire and is already being called a stunning achievement and a propulsive pulse pounding read. The novel begins the night of the fire and follows four characters, white and black, free and enslaved, from, who experience the incendiary event from incredibly different perspectives. Rachel based all four characters on the lives of real people who lived through the fire and its aftermath. And in this talk, Rachel is gonna generously share how she used primary and secondary sources including archival material here at the VMHC to bring these characters and others to life. Rachel Beanland earned her MFA in creative writing from Virginia Commonwealth University and calls Richmond her home. Her first novel, Florence Adler Swims Forever, was selected as book club pick by Barnes and Noble. It was featured, it was a featured debut by Amazon, an indie next pick by the American Booksellers Association and one of the best books of 2020 by USA Today. It was also named a New York Times Editor's Choice and was recognized 
with the 2020 National Jewish Book Award for debut fiction. Her newest book and the subject of today's lecture is The House is on Fire. So we're so delighted to welcome Rachel back to the VMHC and please join, uh, please join me in welcoming her to the institution. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Um, thank you to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. It is really fun to be back in this capacity. Um, I just realized I've never got instructions on how to use this thingy, but I'm assuming I can figure it out. It's just the little arrow button. Um, so yeah, I, I spent um, some nice time here um, during the pandemic as I was writing The House is on Fire. And it feels very full circle to be back here again. So I want to thank you guys very much for having me. And thank you all for coming out um, to hear to hear what I have to say. Um, I want to start this presentation by letting you all know that I am a novelist and not a historian. So everything I tell you, you should fact check through James later, OK? <laughs> um, and in fact, when you're writing novels and you send them off to Simon & Schuster to be published, um, I keep waiting for someone at Simon & Schuster to want to fact check me and they just do not do it. They're like, oh no, it's a novel. It's all fiction. No one cares. And, and I, but I'm very, you know, I want everything to be right. Um, so I thought what I would start by doing is just telling everyone a little bit about the Richmond Theater Fire. How many people um, in this room knew about the Richmond Theater Fire before they heard about this book and this talk? Okay, so this, we're in a group of historians, like the, the numbers are a little higher than usual. Um, I would say usually when I give talks in Richmond, less than 40% of people have ever heard of the Richmond Theater Fire, which I find to be fascinating because of course it was this absolutely huge event in our city um, that happened, you know, 200 and something years ago now. Um, the Richmond Theater Fire took, took place on December 26th, 1811. Um, in a theater, the only theater in Richmond at that time, um, that was located on Broad Street where Monumental Church is now. So this is on the left, if you're going down towards Churchill, it's on the left, um, kind of catty corner to the Capitol. And the the theater had, um, there had been a theater there for, for several decades, but it had it was a different building. The, there had been a theater who, that burned down um, and another one that was constructed um, in 1807. And so that building was only about five years old. It was, you know, a brick three-story building, um, could seat about 600 people, and it was pretty much at capacity on December 26th. Um, and it was a very simple structure. We're talking, you know, box seats, um, a large pit, dirt floor, um, the lobby was planked, very small with a little ticket booth, one set of stairs um, going up to the boxes, um, there was a, a gallery for free and enslaved Blacks that had its own separate entrance, um, which of course wound up being a good thing in a fire. Um, and then of course the stage was accessible um, through a stage door. So that, that's kind of the, the basic, you know, diagram of, of the theater. Um, and you can see, you know, this representation, um, this engraving was done by a guy named Benjamin Tanner who was actually based in Philadelphia. So it's unlikely that he ever saw the, the building. Um, he probably created this based on, you know, description he heard from other people. Um, but it, it matches up with some other engravings. We see some woodcuts and, um, you know, I think we can kind of safely assume that it was a pretty simple structure. Um, 
on the night of December 26th, there was a Charleston-based theater company that was in town. Um, they had been in town since August, performing uh, you know, multiple times a week. They um, had actually put on 24 plays during the, the course of the season. Um, and they were about ready to go home. They were, they were about to, to head back to Charleston. Um, the company was called Placid and Green. And they actually ended up staying in Richmond for an extra performance um, because they were waiting to rendezvous with a, a British actor who was meeting them in Richmond and was going to travel back to Charleston. And, and he didn't show up on the stagecoach. So they said, oh, well, we'll, we'll hang out for a little while longer. Um, the play that they put on the night of December 26th was um, a play called The Father by Diderot. Um, and so it was translated from the French by a, a local um, Richmond French teacher. Um, and that made it a little bit of a, a local favorite, right? People wanted to go out to support him. Um, and then at this time, there were, um, you know, theater was a little bit different. You went for, you went to two shows a night. So there was a drama, you know, something more serious, and then there would be a pantomime afterwards. Um, and the pantomime that night was a, a pantomime called Raymond and Agnes. Um, and that was, that was your chance to get some laughs in. Um, so the, the fire took place um, during the pantomime. So in the second performance of the night and um, started backstage. And I, it's very hard. I'm walking a fine line here, guys, because we're here to talk about the history, but I don't want to give away too many spoilers in the novel. Um, but it started backstage um, and, and we'll go into some of the details when we get to, to some of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture's documents. Um, but the there was a lot of question kind of afterwards about what, what happened. Um, but once, once the fire got going um, backstage, people had very little time to get out. You know, the actors turned to the audience um, they could see the fire happening in the fly space above their heads, um, but the audience couldn't see it. And so eventually they, they turned to the audience and announced the house is on fire, um, which is how we get the name um, of the, the novel. Um, to tell you a little bit about, and I should say that, you know, they announced this, of course, it was very difficult to get out of the theater. Um, and by the end of the night, 72 people had died in the fire. Um, and 72 people, uh, it, this includes 54 women, um, which is a high high percentage of women. Um, the governor of Virginia died in the fire. He had only recently been uh, sworn into office. And then um, there was the president of the Bank of Virginia died in the fire. Um, he was also a former senator. Um, and Benjamin Botts, who had uh, defended um, uh, Aaron Burr in his 1807 treason trial. So, so there were some really notable uh, people who died. Um, but kind of the overwhelming story, for me at least, as I was reading, was, was the fact that 54 women had died. So that's a little bit about the fire. Now to talk a little bit about the novel, I had um, found out about the Richmond Theater fire. I was very lucky. I found out about it the very first day I showed up in Richmond. So I moved to Richmond in 2007 and uh, my husband had taken a job at VCU and I flew down one weekend for a job interview and, um, you know, a realtor had been set up to, to drive me around and, and show me town. And he was really just showing me neighborhoods at this point. You know, I was trying to figure out where we might live if we moved here. And, and he um, was driving me down Broad Street and, and drove me past Monumental Church, pointed out the window and said, there used to be a theater here. Um, and 
he didn't tell me much, just a few little details, but I was immediately enthralled by the story. And over the years, I would kind of, you know, my ears would perk up anytime that the fire was mentioned. And I was always surprised how many people I met who had never heard of the Richmond Theater fire. Um, in 2011, of course, we celebrated the 200th anniversary. So there were some historic organizations around town that, that made note of that. Um, but overall, there, there are a lot of people, you know, who, who don't know about it. Um, in 2020, I, as James mentioned, my first novel was coming out, Florence Adler Swims Forever. And I had started work on um, another novel, something that was going to take place far afield and that was going to require a fairly extensive amount of travel to get right. And I, you know, March 2020, we go into our homes and I didn't know when I would ever get on an airplane again. You know, I here I was trying to write this novel that was going to require this travel. And, you know, I didn't know if I was going to my home for two weeks to flatten the curve, as we as we talked about back then, right? Or was I going to be there a year, five years? I had no idea. So as the months progressed, I started to get a little panicked that um, I might be in a predicament with, with this project I was starting. And so I started to think about whether there might be something that I could write that would be set a little closer to home. Um, and that's when, of course, I came upon, uh, you know, I came kind of back to this idea of, of that, the Richmond Theater fire. And, and I wondered if I could do something with it. Um, I started, you know, that summer of 2020, I started just reading a lot of secondary sources. And, you know, I think one thing I absolutely have to do right now is shout out Meredith Honey Baker's nonfiction book. Um, you can see it. It's the bottom one right here, the Richmond Theater fire. Um, she has spoken here before, actually, at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. So some of you may have caught her. Um, but she wrote a nonfiction book that came out in 2012. And, you know, it was one of the, the first stops I made when I was trying to decide if this was something that I could uh, fictionalize. And as soon as I read her book, I knew that the fire just there was so much depth um, to the story. There were so many different people who had been involved. As a novelist, you're always looking for um, kind of complications, right? Like you want as many complications as possible. And the fire, you know, as soon as I, I started going deeper, I knew there were complications aplenty. Um, some of the other books that I was really appreciative of were um, Gabriel's Rebellion um, by Douglas Egerton, Ben Campbell's Richmond's Unhealed History. These books that allowed me to layer um, the story of the Richmond Theater fire with also Richmond's racial past, you know, history of slavery. Um, because, you know, one of the things that I think I kind of quickly realized was that my, my goal initially had been to write a novel about the Richmond Theater fire. And I quickly realized it was also going to be a novel about slavery, that there was there was really no way to write a book set in 1811 in Richmond, Virginia, without addressing slavery, because, of course, it was woven into every aspect of life. Um, so these were some of the, you know, I have two shelves full in my in my uh bedroom, actually, which is a very unromantic place to store these books, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, but uh, this was one, another one that I, I just loved, um, that, you know, you really have to be specifically interested um, in this topic. But 
The Richmond Stage from 1784 to 1812 by Martin Shockley. He went through, God bless him, every old newspaper known to man and documented every play that was ever performed in Richmond during that time period. Um, which actors were in them, you know, what the what the reviews were from the, the crowd. You know, I, I had a very good sense of what um, the theatrical world looked like in Richmond because of, of that. So, um, of course, eventually I had to get down to primary research or I wanted to get down to primary research. And and I, um, I did archival research a, a few different places. And I'm just going to give a brief shout out to Library of Virginia, because, of course, we're here to talk about the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Um, but the Library of Virginia has a few um, documents that I would be remiss not to tell you about. Um, one of the documents they have that is really beautiful is um, Charles Copland's diary, which is um, Charles Copland lost his uh, daughter, Margaret, in the fire. And so the the diary um, covers what what happened that night, how he learned the news, you know, the kind of all of all of the um, just trauma surrounding that. And then it also deals some with his grief um, and the community's grief in the the days and weeks and months after. and um, just he kind of does a lovely job of, of charting his own personal recovery. Um, in 2011, there was a local historian and attorney named F. Claiborne Johnson um, Jr. who compiled a complete record, quote, a complete record of those who perished in the Richmond Theater fire. And it's really, uh, he made an amazing contribution um, to Richmond's history because it's a document, and you guys may have a copy as well, I think, um, but it, it documents everyone who died, but he gives everyone kind of a page and gives as much biographical information as he possibly can on each person. Um, so that was that was one document that I accessed there. Um, Patrick Henry's documents, um, a lot of them are at the Library of Virginia. And so I was able to look at letters um, to Robert Campbell, who was Sally Henry Campbell's husband. Um, he has died by the time um, my book is set, but he's referenced many times. And I was also able to look at, um, you know, childhood poetry and, and things that the girls, the, the Henry girls had written back and forth to each other, um, which didn't necessarily, necessarily give me a lot of information, but it was just really charming and helped me kind of visualize their, their childhood. Um, one of the things that, that the Library of Virginia um, has is, is just full access to the Richmond Enquirer. Um, which was the the kind of paper of record. I mean, there were there were a couple, but it was a a very uh, good paper at the time. Um, and so, you know, they covered the initial reaction to the fire. Uh, they had a comprehensive list of the dead. Um, they would publish in the days after the fire. They published all of the ordinances um, that came out of the common hall, which is like the version of city council. Um, and uh, so ordinances, and then also would publish things like medical um, advice, because of course, there was no hospital in Richmond in 1811. So everyone had these burns and broken bones from, you know, jumping out of the building. And, and then they went home or went to someone else's home to be treated. And so the Richmond Inquirer was running, you know, instruct, giving instructions on, on how to treat burns and, and how to treat wounds. Um, and in fact, when I, I have a sister who's a nurse practitioner, and when she read the novel, you know, as a Word document before I published it, I um, was asking her, you know, well, do you think, 
what do you think? And she said, I can't judge the medical advice because it's so far removed from, you know, anything we would be doing today that I'm going to just have to trust that you got it right. And I said, well, I pulled it right out of the pages of the Inquirer. Um, the, the Inquirer was run by um, Thomas Ritchie. He was the editor for many years, um, publisher for 41 years. He had established a bookstore in 1803 and then bought the Inquirer in 1804. Um, and he shows up in, in my book as well. Um, Thomas Jefferson said of the Inquirer, I read but a single newspaper, Richie's Inquirer, the best that is published or ever has been published in America. Um, Richie was extremely political um, and he advocated for many restrictions, more restrictions on, on free blacks and the manumission of enslaved people. Um, he served as editor for a very long time um, and then eventually went to the, the nation, a national paper, the Union in D.C., leaving his son in charge of the Inquirer. Um, and, and the paper lasted for a few years after, after the Civil War. Um, I use the paper for all kinds of things. I mean, this ad I use as an example um, that, you know, was this ad was published around the time of the fire. And I actually begin my book um, with a reference to Curtis Fairchild. So for anyone who has read the book, you may recognize this, but I'm just gonna read the first two lines of the novel. Sally Campbell's shoes are fashionable, but extremely flimsy. She ordered them from Curtis Fairchild specifically for Richmond's winter season. But now she feels like a fool for thinking she could get away with wearing them on the half mile walk from her brother-in-law's house to the theater. So this is evidence that novelists really do put the research into their into their novels. Um, I also use the paper for for anything from trying to figure out you know what goods people were able to buy to how much the goods cost um, to what the news was um, both you know around the world as well as um, nationally. In this time period, we have reports of a solar eclipse, an earthquake, um, and it's really riveting to read these papers because you realize how slowly news traveled. Like they'll have articles that will say, you know, three weeks ago in Tennessee, there was an earthquake. And it just boggles the mind because you think about how quickly you would hear about an earthquake in Tennessee now, right? Um, so let's move on to the main event. This is what we really have come here for. Um, the, the Virginia Museum of History and Culture absolutely had um, the most resources um, for me to draw from for, for my novel. Um, this is where I spent most of my time. And I was, you know, I think I should say I'm extremely grateful to organizations like the Virginia Museum of History and Culture that stayed open during the pandemic. I know that that had to have been an extremely big decision for leadership to make, you know, to, to balance the need um, to keep their staff safe with the need for, you know, historians and researchers to be able to access these materials. And, um, you know, when I was coming in here, it was like we were all masked up and you were practically like running for the materials. And I would try to just photograph everything as quickly as I could and then get out, you know. Um, and so it was not a very like luxurious enjoy. It's nothing, nothing like it is now. Uh, not a very luxurious experience. But the the fact that I was able to access the, the documents is is huge. And I know historians who have been working on projects that got 
really side railed by um, the pandemic and where they just had to wait, you know, a year or two extra to be able to, um, to access what they, what they needed. Um, I thought I'd start by talking a little bit about sermons. There are a number of sermons in, um, I'm so bad at the acronym, James. I'm sorry, Virginia Museum. I'm going to say the whole thing because I just can't VMHC. Um, there are a number of sermons in VMHC's collection, um, specifically about the fire, and they fall into a couple of categories. I think that the interesting thing about the sermons is that um, this is actually how Meredith Henny Baker discovered the Richmond Theater fire, you know, when she was trying to figure out if she, um, if there was a story here, right, to write the nonfiction about a book about the fire. Um, she started seeing, she was looking at sermons and, and started realizing that there were all these sermons that were referencing this fire. And she's wondering, what, what is this fire that all these ministers keep talking about? Um, and then that eventually led her to the Richmond Theater Fire. So it's no surprise that in VMHC's collection, there are a number of um, sermons and they, they kind of fall into a few categories. So um, there are sermons like this one. Um, which appeared in, um, this one was given in Philadelphia. Um, and this one was, was given specifically at the request of Richmond, um, by and large Richmond men, who were studying um, in Philadelphia, studying at medical school at, at the University of Pennsylvania. And so they, you know, here you have to imagine you've got these, there was no medical school here. You have all of these guys who go up to Philadelphia to get educated and they get this news that, you know, that there's been this absolutely horrific event in their hometown and they're too far away to travel back. They're, you know, in maybe in the middle of classes or not, but either way, they're, they're not necessarily going to all come. Um, and so they turned to their local churches to see, to, for support. Um, and so you get, you get sermons like these that are there seem to be really targeting Virginians, Virginians either locally or Virginians far field, who may actually know people who were in the fire, may have lost family or friends, um, or at least are very connected to um, the community. And then you also get um, this is another sermon um, that was also given in Philadelphia. Um, where there's not such a strong con connection, you get the impression more that this is a sermon that's being given, um, you know, to, to anyone who is just um, grieving this loss at kind of a more global level, right? But the fire really shook people up, not just in Richmond and in Virginia, but it really shook people up nationally. Um, I think tragedies always do that. You know, we hear about something far away and we put ourselves in that position. Um, but particularly in this time period, there was this overwhelming sense that we were moving away from our values, that we were um, not as godly as we had once been, that we were engaging in things like the theater um, or, you know, cards or cockfighting or, you know, these various uh, entertainments. And that that was, you know, kind of responsible for our downfall. Um, and so a lot of the ministers were really um, using the fire in the same way that, you know, it, it will happen today. They were using the fire as an opportunity to say to their congregants, hey, wake up, pay attention, right? 
um, you know, this is a, a nice time to reflect on, on your life and, and on what you could be um, improving. So, so here's another sermon from Philadelphia. Um, here's one from New York. Um, and, and this, you get this uh, line here at the request of a number of young gentlemen of the city of New York. Um, and it's unclear, like, are those Richmonders or Virginians in New York who've requested it? Um, or are they just people who are kind of consumed with with this event and and want to hear um, more? You have to remember we're we're in a time also where there are no grief counselors. <laughs> um, there are no counselors really of any kind. So people were going to turn to their ministers for for just help kind of explaining a, a tragedy on this scale. At this time, um, this is another one. Um, from Ipswich, Massachusetts. Um, and these are all in, in the permanent collection here. Um, at, at this time, um, there was, we had never experienced a loss of life um, in you know, the country's 35 year history. We had never experienced a single day calamity that resulted in this kind of loss of life. Um, so that, I think really did shake people, um, regardless of whether they knew anyone who had been in the fire or not. Um, this is a sermon that was given in York, England. So goes to show how far news of this fire spread um, and how uh, you know it, it proved to be um, incredible fodder for for months, you know, to come. This one. Um, you can kind of get, I've got a little excerpt to read from you, but read for you, but you can kind of get a feel for um, how the ministers were, were like twisting, you know, news of the fire and, and using it to their own advantage. Um, because this one kind of suggests what the people in the building might have been thinking. And it's very you know, fire and brimstone. Um, they, they, they first query within themselves, can this gay company be composed only of professing Christians have those who are now acting their ludicrous part on the stage and those who are entertained at the expense of their time and talents be baptized in the name of Jesus? Have they vowed or has it been promised for them that they should renounce the devil and all his works, the vain pomps and glory of this world with all covetous desires of the same and the carnal desires of the flesh so that they will not follow nor be led by them? And um, for anyone who asks like why I didn't write the book with um, dialogue from 1811. <laughs> this, is, this is why I tried to throw in like a word here or there, but I, you know, it's a little, it's a little tough. Um, but anyway, so lots of kind of twisting the meaning of the fire. In, in this particular example, um, they also list at the back of the sermon a bunch of other fires that have happened around the world to kind of further illustrate their point. Like, look at all these other, and specifically they're calling out theater fires um, to say, you know, look at what happened in Covent Garden and Drury Lane and, you know, all of these places. Um, so we better get ourselves together. Um, I want to spend a minute talking about broadsides. So, you know, broadsides are these flyers or posters that were used to inform the public about, um, you know, urgent news or events. And they could use them just kind of as announcements. Um, remember, information is getting to you much more slowly in 1811. So, so people could buy these um, on the street, and it was it was 
cheaper and easier than getting a whole newspaper, maybe, right? Like just one specific um, item. Uh, this one on, on the left is the one that regards the Richmond Theater fire. Um, I have it up against, there's a comparison um, to another um, broadside that was published a few years later about the Portsmouth, New Hampshire fire. Um, and we believe those are by the same printer. They very well may be. Um, at least there's kind of some mimicking going on. Um, but it was this broadside, interestingly, we have it in several Richmond collections. I think the Valentine has a copy too. Um, but it actually was printed in Boston. Um, and in Boston, they had actually um, banned the theater for a long time. Um, and it was only in 1793 um, that they you know, Americans were, were saying that this kind of restrict the restrictions on, on going to the theater, um, you know, inhibited their rights um, to personal freedoms. And so the council had relented and repealed their anti-theater laws. So this is only, you know, seven, 18 years later, right, that we've got this, this fire happening. So there's still people in Boston who feel pretty strongly about the theater. And, um, this is an anti-theater broadside. So, and it's it's using um, poetry to get its message across. Um, the poetry is not very good. Um, I I scanned it. Uh, you know, I read every line at the time when it, we were trying to figure out a book title for the novel. Because um, I thought, oh, wouldn't that be fun if I could find a line in here? And it's so over the top and just melodramatic. There was there was absolutely nothing we could have pulled from. Um, but but these are, I think, really interesting um, windows into, you know, this was produced. I mean, you know, the printer saw an opportunity to make money. He was also making a booklet, which we'll, we'll get to a little further on. Um, but it was an opportunity to make money and it was an opportunity to kind of capitalize on um, this very sad event that had happened very far away. Um, but I think it, it shows how much um, attention had been captured across the United States. Um, to give you a little, I'll, I'll read you just like, you know, eight lines or something. Um, oh, what a painful, dreadful talk, which we are called to pen. When will the anguish of our hearts and furrows have an end? Thoughtless of every cheerful air, grief silenced every tongue. The tidings from a sister flute have all our harps unstrung. So anyway, you can keep reading at your leisure. Um, sometimes broadsides would just have reprints of um, newspaper articles. So we get some of those in the collection as well. Um, you know, this is an example uh, reprinting, and this is a photocopy of an original, but um, this is a, a broadside from a Petersburg paper um, and then the American Standard. So again, we're, we're getting duplicates of articles. Um, this was something, you know, when we talk about um, being a novelist and like, you know, all these details are great, but at the end of the day, I've got to write a compelling story, right? And, and that's the most important thing for me as a novelist. Um, this was a document that I really had a lot of fun with. It's a, it's a court opinion um, from 1963 concerning the legal status of monumental church. Um, and it includes the deed and the deed of trust for the land um, from 1814, um, the plats from that time, um, notes concerning the original um, Quesney's Academy, which sat at that location um, and became the, the first theater in Richmond. Um, and then extracts of the Common Council minutes from 1811 to 1813. So 
the the history is that you know after the theater burned um the city acquired the land um that the theater sat on and because they wanted to build a monument to to the dead they had already buried the mon they had already buried the victims in the ruins of the theater um and so they wanted to put the monument on in that location and so the church a uh, monumental church was designed by Robert Mills, the same architect who designed the Washington Monument. Um, and it was constructed between 1812 and 1814 um, when it was opened and consecrated. And monumental church um, remained a consecrated Episcopal church for 150 years. Um, and then finally in 1965, it was deconsecrated. Um, VCU uh, Medical Foundation briefly owned it and then eventually um, ownership was transferred to Historic Richmond who owns it today. Um, it is not surprising that in 1963, you know, you have this congregation that's like ready to move out to the suburbs or all, all its congregants have moved out to the suburbs and they're trying to figure out who owns this, <laughs> um, who owns this and what can we do with it, right? Um, but it goes into all of the details on kind of how the land transfer worked in um, 1811 and who owned it prior to 1811. And, and it's a really kind of complicated um, relationship between the actors um, and then the theater company, because not all actors, some of the actors um, owned the land, but then others were members of the theater company. And so I, but basically I was analyzing it, trying to figure out who had power, right? Because as a novelist, you're always interested in that, right? Who's got the power? That's where the story is. I knew that the the city council, the, the common hall, they desperately wanted that land, right? And I knew that the theater company desperately wanted to be let off the hook. Um, and so trying to figure out who had the leverage with this land ended up becoming a, a plot point with, with the book. Um, I want to talk about these commemorative books that they show up in Richmond, but they also show up across the country and even internationally. Um, this one was published anonymously, but I, I strongly believe it was Thomas Ritchie's print shop um, that would have produced this. It, it doesn't make sense for it to have been anyone else. Um, these books, back in 1811 or 1812, you know, you'd had this very traumatic thing happen, and then you wanted to buy a souvenir. <laughs> and keep it close to you so that you could remember all of the horribleness in, um, you know, vivid color. Um, so, so these commemorative books were very popular. And also, it's important to note that copyright was not really a thing in 1811. So all of these printers would steal from each other, and they'd steal from the newspaper articles that had appeared in different places. And they would just kind of assemble and reassemble each other's writing to create these documents that people could pay for and could take with them. Um, so this book was printed in Richmond, um, probably by Thomas Ritchie's shop, um, because, like I said, he was a he was a bookseller and a, a newspaper guy. So, and he was producing the books he was selling. So, I, I think it makes sense. Um, it begins with uh, a narrative about the fire. Um, gets the, this is kind of page page one almost, uh, a narrative about the fire and um, quickly moves into um, reprinting an article that had appeared in the Inquirer. Um, and then eventually we get to an ordinance, um, you know, a reprint of the ordinance that also appeared in the Inquirer. Um, and the early, this is the ordinance that passed literally the day after the fire, you know, 11 o'clock, December 27th. Some of the things the ordinance is going into at this point are um, 
they're establishing the burial committee. They're telling everyone they can't run businesses for 48 hours after the fire. Um, they immediately decided, it seems like maybe they could have waited on this, but but they got right down to business with this one. Um, no shows or public spectacles of any kind for four months. And if you did go to a dance or a play or something in that period of time, you were going to be fined $6.66. Um, and so they, they figured that out right away. It seemed like they just seemed like their attention was needed elsewhere. I, I don't know. But um, and then they also gave the committee members um, permission to draw upon upon city funds um, to do what they needed to do. There ended up being um, minutes. Let me see if I, I may not have. Well, this we'll get to this in a minute. There were minutes of a mayoral meeting that was held later that day where um, they established a burial committee. They established the inquest committee that would end up running this inquest we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, they established a monument committee, which was run by um, John Marshall, Chief Justice John Marshall. Um, and they kind of start to plan out the burial and, and some other things. Um, so those are all minutes from, from these various meetings. Um, there was a list of the dead. They, they decide on the funeral procession order. Um, this is all stuff that ends up reprinted into these commemorative books. Um, there was an announcement that all members of the legislature had survived the fire. Um, I guess if you do not count the governor. Um, and then uh, we get more narrative and really, it's like straight from that narrative that that some of the stories we know the best about the fire come out, like the governor, the story of the governor, the story of Abraham Venable, the story of um, Lieutenant James Gibbon and Sally Conyers. Some of the more well-known fire um, victim stories come straight out of some of the narrative that appears here. Um, the report on the committee um, of the Committee of Investigation or the Inquest report runs for several pages. Um, and I think it's important to note that this, the whole inquest took place over five days. Like it, it was done very quickly and then it was put to bed. Um, it was also headed up by Thomas Ritchie. Um, so, you know, I kept seeing his name around. It was like, oh, this guy's got some power. Um, we know the theater company could not have been um, completely cooperative with this inquest report. Um, because there's an article that appears in the Inquirer later um, where they are trying to shift the blame and and um, blame the the fire on a, a slave revolt, um, which 100% didn't happen. I mean, you know, they were just trying to throw stuff at the wall and see what would stick. Um, and so, you know, we've got, if they're doing that, we can kind of assume that they probably weren't being completely um, forthright with, with Thomas Ritchie. Um, and then... We also just get this weird report, and, and this is where, as a novelist, it's super fun that I don't have to be a historian, um, because I, you know, read the whole report, and it's like I had a highlighter. I mean, I was going through trying to figure out, okay, you know, who's where, Th these people were backstage, these people were on the stage, you know, but, but the report is kind of infuriating because... Um, it's so vague, like they don't name people. And then that of course led me to have more questions. Cause I'm like, well, if you're not naming anyone who are you protecting? Like who's the inquest report protecting? Um, so to give you an example of some of these vagaries, here's a quote from the inquest report. The man, we don't know who the man is, uh, who raised it, he's, they're talking about the chandelier, did not, does not pretend to deny it but pleads that he did so in consequence of an order from some person 
whom he supposed authorized to direct him. That person was behind him. The voice had reached him without him seeing the person. And he does not pretend positively to recognize him. I mean, this is the theater company giving Thomas Ritchie the runaround, right? Like it's gotta be. We have not the most distant idea that there was the slightest mischievous intention in the order. We No names. We have no idea who was involved in that at all. Here's another quote. The lifter of the lamp says that he was aware of the danger and remonstrated against the act. Oh, the lifter of the lamp. Clear as day, right? Um, Mr. Rice, the property manager, we get his name because he didn't do anything related to it. Um, the property man of the theater says that he saw the scene was over in which the lamp was used. He saw the lamp after it was lifted up. He was aware of the danger of its remaining in that position and spoke to one of the carpenters. We don't know the name of the carpenter. Wouldn't want to put that down on paper. Um, three times repeatedly lower the lamp and blow it up. So this goes on and on. Like no one is named for anything important ever. And that, of course, as a novelist, I'm like, well, why not? Why wouldn't anyone have been named? Ultimately, the report comes to the conclusion that um, the theater company is off the hook. Um, they, they blame the building design um, for the fire. And despite the fact that the building was designed and built by the theater company, the theater company is still completely absolved of all wrongdoing. Um, so that just was lots of, of fodder for me. Um, there were more ordinances in, in these um, in this commemorative book, and and also, you know, I can't. I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that um, Richie goes on to publish the the personal experiences of one, two, three, four, like ten men, white men, um, no women. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but. Um, so we're getting a lot of personal accounts, sometimes of men who were not even at the theater that night. Um, but then meanwhile, the women who were there, were, we're not hearing boo from, from them. Um, this was another commemorative book. This one was published in Boston, probably by the same um, printer who did the broadside that, that we saw earlier. Um, it's not nearly as thorough as, um, as the Richmond one. Um, but again, they don't mind just lifting chunks of, of text where, where they need it. Um, Boston in particular, because they were having this anti-theater moment, um, they covered the Richmond Theater Fire extensively. Um, this is another commemorative book, this one from London. Um, and they're borrowing primarily from um, uh, material that showed up in a commemorative book in, in Philadelphia. Um, this was a newspaper that I just want to show you briefly. Um, it was published in Baltimore. And that was interesting to look at how other cities were talking about the fire. Um, because in Richmond, we had one way of talking about it. And then in other cities, they started to bring up questions that seemed pretty logical, like, hey, Richmond, why did 54 women die? What was happening there? And then the guys in Richmond are like, oh, well, you see, their dresses were very, uh, made it very challenging for them to get out. Or, you know, the, the guys were kind of coming up with all these excuses. Um, but, but it was helpful to have these people far afield who were saying, from the outside looking in, it seems like something suspicious happened. Um, there's some lovely letters in, in VMHC's collection that deal with the fire. 
Um, this one is a letter from Elizabeth Hayes Ellison Dunlap to her nephew, Dr. John Hayes. Um, she was in Philadelphia. He was in Richmond. Um, and I'll, I'll read you some of it. Um, I cannot, my dear nephew, describe the distress of mind we have all experienced on account of the awful calamity sustained by your city, heightened considerably by our fears that you or some of your family should have shared in it. Your letter just received has brought inexpressible relief. It would be impossible for me to express my sensations on this melancholy occasion. My eyes have been swollen with weeping, the fate of the unhappy sufferers, great God. And she goes on. She's, she's very happy that he was escaped the theater. I mean, I don't think he was there, but his sisters might have been. Um, and then it's really interesting how one of the things that I became very fascinated with was this idea of narrative and how narratives get started. And um, so here's a woman in Philadelphia. She's writing this on like January 4th. And she's telling him the story of Lieutenant um, James Gibbons. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know if his name was James Gibbon. I can't remember his first name now. Um, and Conyers, Miss Conyers. Um, so, so she's saying, you know, let me tell you. All right. Where are we? Hold on. Um, among the names of some of the sufferers, I observed Miss Conyers and Lieutenant Gibbon, who lost his life in attempting to save hers. He had got clear from the house and saved his mother's life with his own. And finding that Miss Conyers was left behind, he rushed into the blazing building in search of her and was never seen more. Both perished in the flames. Dreadful scene. Horrors that language has no terms to represent. Well, she's telling a version of that story that's not the same version that's showing up in the commemorative books and other places. So it's like a giant game of telephone. You know, I mean, this is just gossip at this point. You know, she's she's not connected to these people, but she's in Philadelphia. And this is what people are talking about is the, the story of, of Gibbon and um, Conyers really captured the imagination because Gibbon was a, a Navy um, officer. He had lost an arm. Um, and that's frequently not mentioned in a lot of the materials. Um, but so he tried to save this woman who he was secretly engaged to um, at the fire. You know, he was engaged. They were engaged aside from the fire. But at the fire, he tried to save her um, and was unsuccessful. And supposedly they died in each other's arms. People believe this because they found artifacts very close or whatever. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on that. But the, the story kind of took on a life of its own. That this, these lovers had died in each other's arms. Um, and, and so I think it's very interesting to see that there are people in Philadelphia talking about this story on January 4th. Um, and then other people in Richmond reading, uh, you know, various versions of it. Um, this... Uh, letter is from Robert Mills, um, the guy who designs Monumental Church, um, writing to Sarah Zane in Philadelphia. And he's writing about the design of Monumental um, and also just the spiritual condition of Richmonders at the time. Um, you will feel interested to know how the Monumental Church progresses as through divine providence, I trust its use to the sacred duties of religion will be advanced. And he goes on to share a description of this altar painting um, that's going to portray the redemption of Richmond. Um, and but basically the theme is, I will not subject you to, because it's long and dense, but um, but the general theme is that like Richmond was really on a downward spiral, what with all the play going and, and, and whatnot. And now we have been redeemed because we're going to put our butts in the church pews and do what we need to do, right? Um, and then this last um, this last letter is 
um, was actually addressed to Sally Henry Campbell, um, who became Sally Scott. Um, and she also went by Sarah Scott. She went by a few things, but Patrick Henry's daughter. Um, and the letter is not even very important, um, but it's just fun. She was one of the four characters in the novel. So for me to hold a letter in my hands that she also held in her hands and you know, for me to be deciphering the same handwriting that she would have been squinting at um, was, was kind of special. Um, poetry came out of, of the, the fire. Um, this is a monody, like a very long poem in which um, one person is lamenting another's death. Um, again, this was published in, surprise, surprise, Boston. Um, and then we have a bunch of documents um, in the collection that, that appear in the years after the fire. So they were interesting for me because it proved that the fire, you know, kind of remained in people's um, heads. It, it became part of like the collective imagination. Um, people were, people continued to be interested in it, but the, the narrative also changed. Um, and so I, I just like the fact that the collection doesn't kind of end with, with 1811 or 1812. Um, this, this piece was published in 1858. Um, we've got this, um, there's this ghost story that was written, um, in 1922 that's in the collection. I mean, this concerns the death of, of Nancy Green. I um, mean, it's still, you know, in, in this case, there's there's a lot of rumor, people's, who, people whose grandparents or great-grandparents lived across the street from someone who knew Nancy Green, you know, all that stuff, the, the kind of legend of the fire is um, making its way into um, into these works that that then are, you know, here for us to, to enjoy. Um, one of the things, and I'm going to close now for questions, but um, but one of the things that I just want to kind of leave you with the idea of is that um, we don't get any um, documentation about what the women experienced in the fire until we start to get documents like this, you know, like 90 years later, 100 years later, because the women left the fire and they wrote letters to each other or they wrote diary entries. Um, and it's only after they died and, you know, that these letters started to be published in maybe genealogical societies or um, various kind of local publications. So we start to get start to get some of that um, down the road. And that also became fascinating to me. Um, there's so much more to say, but we are getting um, we're going to run out of time. So I would love to take questions. And I know we have some mics in the back. Um, we've got two people walking down the aisle. So I'm here for it. So any questions? You can just raise your hand. We'll come. Here we go. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, one of your sources is a broadside. Mm -hmm. As an old Navy man, I only knew that for shore bombardment or something. Where, where does that term come from, the broadside? Oh, gosh, James is probably better at answering that. I don't know. Do, do you know where the term broadside comes uh, from? I think it's because it's a broadside that's legible, easily visible. Yeah. Kind of yeah, I don't know. That's where, like, I'm a novelist and I can't help you. <laughs> I can tell you about the characters in the book if you want, but no. <laughs> I'm glad it exists. Yeah. This is a uh, fun fact. Uh, our son was involved in a fantastic uh, VCU theater production about 17 years ago. Yep. I read the play. Yeah. And that's that's one of the cool things is that, you know, 
I like to think that my novel is like just sitting in this long timeline, like a continuum of art that has been created in response to the fire. And it's like people are going to keep creating art in response to this fire. I think partly because there is such a rich collection to draw from and, and we know so much. Um, and, and partly because we're always, I think, going to be interested in these kind of large scale calamities because it forces us to ask like what we would do in a similar situation. Well, they did it great. It was uh, renowned and won awards. And really yeah, I, I wish I could have seen it. I've heard a lot of good things about it. Someone back there. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Just, just talk. I can't see. Okay. Um, I'm curious. Uh, it, as you said, this fire caught the uh, attention of the country and the world, and ministers used it to uh, question the uh, the need to go to the theater. I'm wondering if, particularly since some of your documents seem to have come from the north, and this would have been a little early in the abolitionist movement, but did you find any documents, uh, contemporary documents that attributed the, uh, the the punishment of Richmond, uh, the fire, that is, uh, to their um, embrace of slavery, the, the people in Richmond and the, the peculiar institution. And in the North, they might have said, well, this is your punishment for embracing slavery. I think there were some documents in England that did that, that, that took that approach. Um, but yeah, I don't know um, if they specifically were calling out slavery, not, not to my knowledge, in the North because they were so consumed with the idea of just theater in general. I mean, Richmond did not um, have any theater for nine years after the fire. I mean, they were very opposed um, even, even locally. Um, and then eventually it was people like Thomas Ritchie who, who got it back. Um, they, you know, William Wirt, Thomas Ritchie, um, John Marshall, like there were a number of them who kind of eventually, you know, cooler heads prevailed and they were like, guys, we, we don't think we're going to hell if we <laughs> build another theater. And, and so they, they tried again, but um, yeah, no, there, there has been some correlations there. There's someone over here. Yeah. Did any of the performers perish in the fire? Um, well, okay. This is a, it's a little, I, I spoilers are really hard. Like from, from a nonfiction perspective, I can spoil all day, but the novel, you know, includes some of them too. Um, one, uh, one did one, one person in the, the theater company did, but I won't tell you who in case you read the novel. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I guess we need a microphone down here. Have you ever done any extensive historical research like this before in your life? You know, so my first novel, Florence Adler Swims Forever, is um, based on a drowning that took place in my family in Atlantic City in uh, 1929. I had a great, great aunt, um, this is Jewish side of my family. Um, she, a great, great aunt who, when she was 19, she was training to swim the English Channel and she drowned off the coast of Atlantic City. Um, and that summer, my grandmother was a little girl and um, they were on the beach that day, you know, she, one of my grandmother's earliest memories was watching her great, great aunt or her, it was her aunt's body be brought back up onto the shore. And that summer, her mother, my great grandmother was um, in the hospital on bed rest. She had, uh, she was pregnant. She'd lost a baby the previous year. And so the family made the decision not to tell her, her sister had died. Um, and I've, I had always been fascinated by that story. I knew that I had had this person in the family who had drowned, but I also knew that she, um, that they had, 
work together to kind of keep this story a secret. And so when I set about writing that novel, I initially thought, oh yeah, I'll just write this family story. And of course it involved so much research um, because I needed to get right um, you know, the Jewish community in Atlantic City um, in the, I set the story in 1934. Um, and, you know, I ended up doing tons of research on channel surfing and open water, uh, channel swimming and open water swimming in general, Trudy Etterly and these women who had swum the channel in that time period. So the research went very deep. Um, so yes, in answer to your question, I have had the experience doing this level of research before, um, but I still was not prepared for what it would be like to try to research anything set in 1811. Um, it's a different level than researching Atlantic City in 1934. Um, first of all, in Atlantic City, there were postcards and you can kind of go on eBay and find like these little souvenirs and tchotchkes and whatever that will give you a really good sense of, of the era and, and what people were doing. Um, you know, we are, we are, there is, are very few images of Richmond in 1811. Um, and so I, I really did have to use my imagination much more frequently um, this time. But, and, and the documents were all much harder to read than <laughs> they'd been in 1934. And there's someone right there. Your book has gotten a lot of publicity nationwide. As an author, how do you respond to that? Uh, um, authors are all like, we're complete freaks. And so um, you, we can't even enjoy it. <laughs> I'm like already panicked about the next book. And like, you know, I'm like, oh God, what am, what am I going to write next? So it's going to, you know, no, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled when, you know, when the good stuff comes in, but you try to kind of moderate that because, you know, well, what if I write the next book and good stuff doesn't come in or, you know, so I, I try to kind of separate it and say, I'm going to try and write the very best book I can write. And then once it's out of my hands and it becomes this like object that you all can hold in your hands, um, then I try as much as I can to separate from it and, and say, okay, time for me to go do something else. And um, yeah, but it is nice when the, when the good stuff happens. Okay, this will be the last question. And then I'm going to go upstairs and sign books in the lobby. John Marshall was a Mason, and I'm wondering if there are Masonic elements in the Monumental Church. And you know what? I don't know that level of detail. I think there might be, but um, I don't really know. Sorry. Okay. Well, thank you guys very much. I will see you upstairs. Feel free. If you have questions that have not been answered, feel free to come grab me in the lobby, and I will try to make sure I get to all of them. Can I take this? Yeah. Okay. Well done, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you.